I'd like to add my voice to many others in thanking the Excelsior Springs congregation for all of your hard work in making this meeting all of the good things that it has been for us visitors. I'm afraid uh, the main thing many of us visitors did was just give you an opportunity to work yourselves to death. And I've empathized. I'm from a congregation that's hosted this meeting eight times and I know what it takes. And we really appreciate what you have done for us. We hope that our gratitude will help you to feel that it was all worth all the effort that you expended. So we thank you. You've done a good work. The topic assigned for this evening is Christ is greater than Satan. That has in some sense been the theme of this meeting this week. 2,000 years ago, there was a man born contrary to the laws of life. He lived in poverty and was reared in obscurity. He did not travel extensively. Only during his childhood exile did he cross the boundary of the little country where he lived. He possessed neither wealth nor political influence. In infancy, he startled the king. In childhood, he puzzled doctors. In manhood, he ruled the course of nature, walked on the billows as if pavements, and hushed the sea to sleep. He healed the multitudes without medicine and made no charge for his services. He never wrote a book, and yet our libraries couldn't begin to hold all the books that have been written about him. He never wrote a song, yet he has furnished the theme for more songs than all the songwriters combined. He never founded a college, but all the schools put together cannot boast of having as many students. He never practiced psychiatry, yet he has healed more broken hearts than all the doctors far and near. The names of the past proud statesmen of Greece and Rome have come and gone. The names of scientists, philosophers, and theologians have come and gone. But the name of this man abounds more and more. And though time has spread two millennia between our generation and the scene of his crucifixion, yet he still lives. Herod could not destroy him, and the grave could not hold him. He stands forth upon the highest pinnacle of heavenly glory, proclaimed by God, worshipped by angels, adored by saints, and feared by demons as the living Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Christ is the fact of facts, the Bible's theme. He stands alone, august, unique, supreme. The bread of life who meets the need of man, who comes to all, or field and moor and fin. The man of pain who feels all human pain and slakes the thirst and turns all loss to gain. He is the God, all light from him doth gleam. He is the man of men, 
beyond all dream. He is the God of love, all love divine. He is the hand of power, all strength sublime. From him all things come forth, in him consist. To him all tend, and all by him subsist. The Bible speaks of him, the Christ reveals. The eyes that close to him, all truth conceal. He is the gospel's theme, he died for all. His death alone can free from sins and thrall. His resurrection life, the might of might. His reign within the soul, the life of right. His peace within the heart, the calm of love. His joy untold, the thrill from realms above. His love, the fire that burns within the fane. His promises, the world's refreshing rain. His spirit came, the outcome of his death. The power of God, his grace and living breath. He's all. The visibility of God. And so I sing of him and onward plod. Jesus is the center and circumference of all reality. Anything that does not come from Jesus has no authority. Anything that does not lead to Jesus has no validity. We are either going to be forever with him or forever without him. There is sometimes an assumption of symmetry. In November of 1963, the most powerful man in the world made a journey to Dallas, Texas. Hundreds of people worked to facilitate that trip. Thousands of hours were spent in preparations being made. The specially modified limousine was flown in by transport plane for the motorcade. And the President of the United States rode through downtown Dallas because that's where the most people could see him. An assumption of symmetry would say that to successfully do away with the most powerful and carefully guarded man on earth would take an opposite and somewhat equal organization with lots of cooperation, lots of moving parts, multiple people involved. So theories abound. You know the theories. Yet the evidence shows that one little local loser killed the president by himself without anyone else being privy to the plan, simply by taking advantage of the opportunity that fell into his lap as the president rode in an open car through tall buildings with windows too numerous to be guarded. The assumption of symmetry is wrong when applied to the JFK assassination. The assumption of symmetry is also wrong when applied to Christ and Satan. There are dualistic theories which have Christ and Satan as somewhat equal, opposite, opposed forces. But that's not the Bible story at all. There can't be symmetry with God because there's nobody like God. There can't be symmetry with Jesus Christ because he's absolutely unique. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Christ is eternal. 
Satan is created. Christ is unchanging, yesterday, today, and forever. Satan changed from the good thing he was when created. If Christ is omnipotent, Satan is limited in power. If Christ is omniscient, Satan is limited in knowledge. Greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. Now, everything we know about Satan the devil, we learn from the Bible. We don't know a single thing about him other than that which is revealed. The word Satan means an adversary. The word devil means an accuser. And the Bible reveals Satan the devil as a person, a personality. The first messianic prophecy in Genesis 3.15 was partly about him. The Lord had a confrontation with him. The devil is real. He's just as real as you are. The devil is a created, personal, malevolent, worldwide power who is the enemy of both God and man. But he's not deity. He's not eternal. The devil is not a fallen god. God is omnipotent, all-powerful. We have the statement made in Job 42, verse 2, To God, I know that thou canst do all things and that no purpose of thine can be restrained. Deity cannot be restrained. But Satan was restrained. In the book of Job, Satan was allowed to afflict but could go only so far as God would permit. Hence, he was restrained, thus not omnipotent, thus not God. In Luke 22, Jesus said to Peter, Satan has desired to have you, plural, apostles, but I made supplication for thee that thy faith fail thee not. The devil wanted all of the apostles, but he only got one. Satan was unable to accomplish his design. Whereas God is able to do anything consistent with his nature and his character. So anything that's not deity is created. Only God is eternal. Christ is eternal. The Holy Spirit is eternal. These three are God. The devil is not of the nature of God and is therefore created. But did God create a malevolent being? No, Genesis 1.31 says that at the end of the sixth day of creation, God saw everything that he had created, and it was very good. If Satan was created, and everything created was created good, I conclude that the one we now call Satan was created good. But he fell. He apostatized. God, therefore, created him as a being of volition with the power of choice and with individual responsibility. So Satan chose to sin. The Bible seems to indicate that he led some of the angelic class with him and eventually the whole human race. 1 John 3.18 tells us that the devil sinneth from the beginning. I think that passage likely teaches that the devil was the first sinner. So he's been sinning from the beginning, and from that time he has influenced others to follow his nefarious way. So he was created good, but then fell. We heard in our class this afternoon about when he might have been created. I would follow that same line of reasoning. Exodus 20.11 says that everything terrestrial, celestial, and aquatic was created by God within the six days of creation. I believe that the being that we now call the devil was created during the creation week. 
And I also agree with when during the creation week. I believe he was created at the very commencement of the first day of creation. That's when the angelic hosts were brought into being, I believe, along with the one that we call Satan, either among them or along with them. In the beginning, God created the heavens, I think, includes more than just the atomic particles composing the atmosphere in contradistinction to the earth in its initial formless and empty state. And as was referenced this afternoon, Job 38 and 7 talks about the sons of God shouting for joy when the foundations of the earth were laid. Who were those sons of God? Angels and perhaps other beings as well. This suggests that the angels were created before the foundations of the earth were laid. Therefore, it would be early on day one. Job 4.18 says, speaking of God, his angels he charged with folly. The angels originally, apparently, at least not all of them, were absolutely incorruptible. 2 Peter 2.4 says that God spared not the angels that sinned, but cast them down to Tartarus. Again, in the sixth verse of the book of Jude, the angels which kept not their first estate, but left their own habitation, he hath reserved in everlasting chains under darkness unto the judgment of the great day. So angels sin. Sin is a transgression of the law, 1 John 3, 4. Angels must have been subject to divine law, and some of them transgressed it. Heaven cannot abide sin. God is of purer eyes than to behold evil. Yes, he can be in his presence for a while, but he can't stand it for very long. They were cast out. We have an interesting indication in 1 Timothy 3.6 among the qualifications for the eldership. Lest he fall into the same kind of condemnation that the devil fell into. I believe this may be a, hist a historical reference to the fall of the devil. An elder must not be a novice, a neophyte, a new plant, indicating, I think, that Satan's fall may have come when he was a neophyte, not very long after his creation. Now, we don't know all about the time sequence involved between the creation and the time that the tempter came to Eve in the form of a serpent, but it might not have been very long. So summarizing this section, I believe the Bible clearly indicates that Satan is a fallen celestial being. He is superhuman. He's worldwide in his influence. In Job's day, he was going to and fro in the earth and walking up and down in it. But he's not omnipresent. He has well-organized demonic minions. Even though they are restricted, restrained, and chained, they still have a tremendous influence in the world. And a wicked and malevolent influence it is. As Satan, the devil is the adversary and opponent of God and his people. He is thousands of years old. He is intelligent, and he puts his experience to good use. He doesn't miss much. He understands you perhaps better than you understand yourself. As the devil, Diabolos, he is the slanderer and accuser of the brethren as well as of God. But the Apostle Paul says that we are not ignorant of his devices, his tactics, his schemes. He has ministers who are transformed into angels of light. He has his synagogues and he has his churches. And he spreads his evil influence throughout the world. We must never underestimate the power of Satan. But we must never overestimate that power either. Resist the devil and he will flee from you, James chapter 4. The God of peace will crush Satan 
under your feet slowly, Paul wrote to the Roman brethren, Romans 16, 20. Greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. We have that assurance and should take it to heart. Jesus met the devil head on in the desert right at the beginning of his public ministry, still dripping from his dunking in the Jordan. With the Father's warm personal blessing still ringing in his ears, Jesus walks into the wilderness. But it was the Spirit of God who led him out there for 40 days. Jesus didn't just wander off on his own in search of some meaningful monastic pilgrimage. Right after his experience of victory and affirmation at the river, God put him in the desert to be hit by the worst kind of temptation. Deprived of the comfort of water, food, and warmth, Jesus' spiritual muscles were tested by the wilderness. And then in his weakened state, after 40 days in the desert, Jesus was presented with three temptations. He had to decide whether there was anything on this earth that merited his giving up what he believed about his father. He learned obedience by the things which he suffered, and he learned the hard way that there is no easy way out, and that his ride on this earth was going to be a wild one, and that he had some choices about where his allegiance was going to lie. These choices were not easy for him, but the way out is through. The way out is through. Temptation one was bread. After 40 days with nothing to eat, a piece of bread would seem like a lavish banquet. And Jesus was hungry. The offer of bread was nothing to sneeze at. If it's true that Jesus performed no miracles before his baptism, and we certainly don't have any evidence that he did, and he just came from his baptism, then maybe he hadn't performed any miracles yet. If he had just been gifted with the power, this new power, to perform miracles, would turning those stones into bread have been his first miracle? I think that's a possibility. So here is not only an offer of bread, but the possibility of doing it for himself. He could now make bread out of rocks. And food did have some level of importance for Jesus. He taught his disciples to pray for bread every day. He turned water into wine. Physical sustenance was important to him as it is to us. I don't know how much of the countryside in Jesus' time was arable land, but later on only about a fifth of it was. Bread was a precious commodity. Physical needs are part of human existence. Meeting these needs was one way that Jesus showed his love for people. He fed the 5,000. He fed the 4,000. Stuffed them full so that they left baskets of fragments behind. But the man who later proclaimed, my food is to do the will of him that sent me and to finish his work in John 9, 34, was not about to be sidetracked by something that would fill his stomach for a few hours and then leave him feeling emptier than ever. Though our physical needs are real, they are temporary. They're temporal. And filling them is only a temporary solution. Feeding a hungry person is good. Jesus did it often. But feeding a hungry person is not the highest good. So this was a great first place for the devil to start with Jesus. 
We need that reminder that nothing physical will satisfy the void in our lives. You can't live by bread alone. You won't be satisfied. You want something that satisfies forever, not just for an hour. And this, not succumbing to this miracle, was the first way that Jesus showed he was greater than Satan, quoting scripture right back at him. Dostoevsky wrote about the temptation of Christ in the brothers Karamazov, or however you pronounce that name. I've never been clear on how it's pronounced. But in that Russian novel, the Grand Inquisitioner labels the second temptation as the temptation of authority. Satan took Jesus up high, overlooking the nations of the earth, showed him all the kingdoms of the world and the glory of them, and said, if you'll only fall down and worship me, all the power, all the glory of ruling the world will be yours. Jesus knew that he was sent here to establish a new world order. And this was a very tempting offer. Circumvent all the misunderstandings that you know you're headed for. Circumvent the horrible crucifixion. And usher in your own world order now. Here's your chance. Here's the way to win without risk. Here's the way to win without pain. They say if it sounds too good to be true, it probably is. Satan was trying to convince Jesus that the end justifies the means. That it doesn't matter how you get there as long as you get there. But Jesus knew that if he worshipped Satan, Satan would be his God. When the devil offered Jesus these kingdoms of the world, they were apparently his to give. This was a very real temptation. Jesus knew that authority gained based on the worship of anybody other than God would be futile. What Jesus faced and what we face is the temptation to take authority over our own lives back from God and keep it for ourselves. It might seem like a good idea when you start. But Jesus knew it could lead nowhere but into deep trouble. The Lord Jesus invites us to encounter this world without anesthesia. God uses that which we avoid to provide that which we most deeply desire. He that loseth his life for my sake shall find it. The way of the cross leads home. Our ultimate authority should always be God. We must train ourselves to keep our eyes focused on God. The same light that illuminates this room tonight, if focused into a single beam, could cut through steel. And you are the light of the world. Those who have spiritual power are always people who can focus on who they are and why they're here. Jesus knew that the only true fulfillment is found in keeping nothing for ourselves, no authority, no position, no ideology that would distract in any way from the total worship of God. Temptation three could have unhinged it all. The pride of life. Love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. If any man love the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life is not of the Father, but is of the world. And the world passeth away, and the lust thereof. But he that doeth the will of God abideth forever. The first temptation was the lust of the flesh. 
The second temptation was the lust of the eyes. The third temptation is the pride of life. The devil says to Jesus, God will always take care of you. The Bible says so. So show me how much you believe that. Jump off the pinnacle of the temple. God will send his angels to catch you. It must have been tempting to prove to Satan once and for all that God's power was sufficient to get Jesus through anything. And all the people would have thought it was the most spectacular thing they had ever seen. Look, up in the sky, it's a bird, it's a plane. No, it's Jesus could have been regarded as Superman. But Jesus would have been tempting God, trying to fit the mystery of God into some human formula. It would have been so much easier to take things into his own hands than to wait for God to deliver. So much easier to say, well, I know that God loves me and I'll show you, Satan. And to fall into that trap of trying to force the Father's hand and trying to control God and thereby pandering to human pride. We don't run this world. We don't force God's hand. The best we can do is to refuse to take our eyes off of God, believing with all that we have that God will make everything come out right in the end and that we will follow no matter how long and no matter how far, even as far as the cross. Jesus is the only one who ever truly bore the full brunt of temptation because he is the only one who never succumbed to it. The moment you succumb to a temptation, then you're not faced with the agony of facing that temptation anymore. Jesus never succumbed. And there was nobody there with Jesus when he ran into Satan. He was out there all alone. Maybe he later told his disciples about his experience in the wilderness. They had to learn about it some way to write it down for posterity. Maybe he told his disciples about this so that when they later saw the whips and the guards and the death, that they wouldn't lose heart. Maybe he told them so they could tell us that this road to the cross is an invitation to us to keep on putting one foot in front of the other and fix our eyes ahead, following Jesus to the cross and beyond in total devotion to the Father. We've met together this week in part to keep each other on track, remembering that pleasure, power, and pride are not enough to take us away from following Jesus. The Bible is the source of the highest conception of who we were originally and who we might yet become. There's not one iota of naivete in it about who we are right now. The Lord assures us that we can win. We can win. We've come this far, and we can win. Greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. You know, by the time the Apostle John wrote that in 1 John 4, 4, he has cycled around and around through the same truth, each time expanding a little on our understanding of it. And the understanding is that we are in an epic spiritual war the battle for our minds. Error cannot stand the test of biblical scrutiny. Satan tries to create doubt about God's word. Hath God said? He distorts God's word so that it's a misrepresentation of what God said, or he outright denies what God said. 
And the doubt, the distortion, and the denial all add up to deceit. So the Apostle John says in 1 John 4, 1, try the spirits, whether they be of God. Every religious ideology has a spiritual source, and there are only two spiritual worlds. Demons wage a persistent and endless counter-campaign against the truth of God. So 1 Timothy 4, 1 says, he talks about people giving heed to seducing spirits and doctrines of demons, speaking lies in hypocrisy. These are human liars, human false teachers, false prophets, seared in their own conscience as with a hot iron. Their conscience is like scar tissue. It's been cauterized so that they feel no conviction, they feel no remorse. These people are the tools seducing spirits use to propagate lies against the truth of God. Behind all false doctrines, I believe, are seducing spirits. James 3.15 says the wisdom which is not from above is earthly, sensual, and demonic. So we have in 1 Timothy chapter 10, verse 20, the, there is only one God, there is no other God. The idol is only a non-existent God, but when people sacrifice to idols, they sacrifice to demons. You don't want to be a sharer with demons. You can't drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. There's no God there, just wood or stone, but behind that evil system are demons because there is no form of religion that speaks to the issues of time and eternity and salvation that is benign. It's either the power of truth or the power of satanic lies. You can never make an easy truce with error because it's not static, it's not inert, it doesn't stay the same, it's energized by the forces of hell. The false god doesn't exist, but the demons exist who concocted that worship as an assault on the truth of God to capture people's souls in a fortress that becomes their prison and ultimately their tomb. Leviticus 17.7 says, They shall no longer sacrifice their sacrifices to the goat demons with which they play the harlot. Creating a goat god did not make that goat a god, but it gave an opportunity for the demons to be worshipped. We have the same thing in Deuteronomy 32 verse 17, Psalm 106 verse 37. They say the same thing. Any form of religion other than the truth is a demonic operation. 2 Peter 2.1, there will be false teachers among you who will secretly introduce damnable heresies, heresies that damn people. And many will follow their sensuality. Because of them, the way of truth will be maligned. Paul says the church has to be the pillar and support of the truth. Demonic deception leaves no Christian doctrine unattacked. There are simple systems of delusion, there are complex systems of delusion, but the battle for truth is the most important battle. In the community of Christians to whom the Apostle John was writing, there was an attack going on. Seducing spirits had found some willing, hypocritical, lying teachers without conscience who would teach lies. And the spin was, that they had the higher, more elevated knowledge. They had the secret knowledge, the esoteric, exalted knowledge. And what the simple Christians believed was lowly, mundane, crass, and infantile by comparison. And never even got close to decoding the spiritual realities of the universe. John is very concerned about these false teachers assaulting the church. They were false Christians disguised as messengers of light. 
John says you have to know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. The most important thing the church does is to proclaim the truth. The once for all delivered to the saints truth. People were bailing from the church because the false teachers had come in and were successful. But if you know the truth, you know a lie when you hear it. You don't have to depend on some human teacher. John says don't believe every spirit. Don't be gullible. If you want to hear the Spirit of God speak, open the Bible because that's where he spoke. The Greek inflection here is stop believing every spirit. It is the forbidding of an action that was already going on. I know people who when they come to Sunday morning church are already so full of what they just heard on Christian radio and TV so-called that they hardly have room left in their brain for what the Bible says. Be like the noble Bereans and search the scriptures to see if it's so. The word for test or try here in 1 John 4 is taken from metallurgy. Metal was assayed as to its value. Metal was put through the fire to test its strength. Don't be gullible. Be skeptical. I appreciate skepticism. We need that. Hold fast that which is good. Test everything. Prove all things. Paul told the, the Corinthians that when you were pagans, you were led astray to dumb idols even as you were led. You had a ring in your nose and you were led around all over the place. Why? Because you had no substance of truth by which to evaluate anything. You were vic uh, virtually a victim of everything. But you don't need to be like that in Christ. You can be discerning and you should be. You've got to be discerning. Test what you hear. Many false prophets are gone out into the world. And Satan doesn't want so much to be the opposition to the church as he wants to be confused with the church. He doesn't want to come out as anti-Christian. He wants to come out as pro-Christ. It's easier to sell. So 1 Thessalonians 5, prove all things. Hold fast that which is good. So many people don't want to discern today because they don't want to say that anybody's wrong. That hurts people's feelings. It makes them feel bad. Matthew 7, 15. Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing. You have enough information to know them. But our churches today have many people who are virtually unable to engage in this spiritual battle. You who know the truth stand in a very important place in the kingdom of God today. You are the soldiers on the front line for truth. And what a glorious privilege that is. May we all engage faithfully in this battle, discerning for ourselves and for the sake of others, so that we might be meet for the master's use. Greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. Fight this battle with all your might and guard the truth for the next generation. Christ is greater than Satan. Our king is a sovereign king. No means of measure can define his limitless love. No far-reaching telescope can bring into visibility the coastline of his shoreless supply. No barrier can hinder him from pouring out his blessings. He is enduringly strong. He is entirely sincere. He is eternally steadfast. He is immortally graceful. He is infinitely powerful. He is impartially merciful. He's the greatest phenomenon that has ever crossed the horizon of this world. He's God's son. He's the sinner's savior. 
He's the centerpiece of civilization. He stands alone in the solitude of himself. He's honest and he's unique. He is unparalleled. He is unprecedented. He's the loftiest idea in literature. He's the highest personality in philosophy. He's the supreme problem in higher criticism. He's the fundamental doctrine of true theology. He's the necessary core for spiritual religion. He's the miracle of the ages. He's the superlative of everything good. He's the only one qualified to be our all-sufficiency. He supplies strength for the weak. He is available for the tempted and tried. He sympathizes and he saves. He strengthens and he sustains. He guards and he guides. He discharges debtors. He delivers the captive. He defends the feeble. He blesses the young. He serves the unfortunate. He regards the aged. He rewards the diligent. He beautifies the meek. He's the key to knowledge. He's the wellspring of wisdom. He's the doorway of deliverance. He's the pathway of peace. He's the roadway of righteousness. He's the highway of holiness. He's the gateway of glory. His office is manifold. His promise is sure. His life is matchless. His goodness is limitless. His mercy is everlasting. His love never changes. His word is enough. His grace is sufficient. His reign is righteous. His yoke is easy and his burden is light. I wish I could describe him to you, but he is indescribable. He's incomprehensible. He is invincible. And if you love the truth, he is irresistible. You can't get him out of your mind, and you can't get him off your hands. You can't outlive him, and you can't live without him. The Pharisees couldn't stand him, but they found they couldn't stop him. Pilate couldn't find any fault in him. Herod couldn't kill him, death couldn't handle him, and the grave couldn't hold him. Greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. Christ is greater than Satan. Will you come and be his tonight? We invite you in his name and by his authority as we stand and sing song number 98 in the red book. Dylan.